0: I want to begin today by telling you about a guy named Edgar Wisenant. Uh, He's a real guy. You can Google him. That's the only picture I was able to find of him. Uh, There aren't very many pictures of him, but that's one. Uh, He doesn't look real happy there, does he? And when I tell you his story, you'll understand why he looks like that. In 1988, Edgar Wisenant wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. There's a picture of the booklet. Uh, Edgar had done some Bible study. He'd done some figuring with calendars and historical events, and he came to the conclusion that the rapture was going to happen sometime between September 11th and September 13th, 1988. Now, if I had written that book, no one would have paid any attention to it. If almost anyone else had written that book, no one would have paid any attention to it. But because Edgar Huisinant wrote it, lots of people paid attention to it. In fact, that little booklet sold 4 million copies. And you're probably wondering what made Edgar Huisinant so special that people would buy the book if he wrote it. Well, here's the answer. Edgar Whisenant was a NASA rocket scientist. And isn't it true that we use rocket science as the standard for intelligence? I mean, we say, well, it's not rocket science, suggesting that rocket science is like the highest level of intellectual endeavors. And so when an honest-to-goodness real rocket scientist starts calculating the end times, a lot of people said, man, he's a rocket scientist. We better pay attention. And they did, to the tune of 4 million copies sold. But as you know, 1988 was 30 years ago. And we're all still here. Let me tell you what happened. Those dates in September came and went, uneventfully. And so... Edgar got out his pencil and sharpened it and started refiguring, and lo and behold, he found a math error in his own work. So he slapped his forehead, said, duh, and announced to the world that he had made a mistake, and the date was actually September 15th, two days later. So he encouraged everybody to lace up their sneakers real tight, lest they be sucked out of them on the 15th. But then the 15th came and went. And nothing happened. So he recalculated a second time and moved the date to October 3rd. And then October 3rd came and went. And nothing happened. And by this time, about 4 million people are having buyer's remorse on Edgar's little booklet. And Edgar Wisenant stands in history as a laughingstock. Friends, this is the area of biblical study where people get really crazy. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said, No one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows. And that mystery just seems to lure people into all sorts of speculations. People like Edgar Wisenant just can't stand it. They have to try to figure it out. And the result is that they end up looking like fools. And the rest of us then get scared away. We shy away from the whole topic of the second coming and end times theology because we're scared of it. We conclude that if the rocket scientists among us can't understand it, then what business do we have studying it and trying to think about it? It's hopeless, which is unfortunate because the Lord's return in glory should be one of our greatest comforts and sources of hope. It should make you feel better every day of your life to know that you're not always going to be in this mess. That the Lord is going to come back someday and take those who are still living home to a place where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. What a glorious truth that is, but we tend to steer clear of it because there are so many things about it we don't know, so many things we don't understand, so many different opinions. And we know if we get into those conversations that somebody's quickly going to ask us questions we can't answer, and we'll be embarrassed. So let's just not think about it. Let's just not study it. Today, I want to try to break through the fog, all the confusion, and simplify the second coming for you. Because it should be a relief. It should be a comfort to us. It should be something we're not afraid to think about. Matthew 24 is where a lot of people start building their end times theology. And it is a challenging chapter. There's no question about that. Um, But there are three truths in that chapter that come shining through the fog like lasers. And I want to talk about those three truths today because... They really are not debatable. They're not confusing. They are what you can know about the end times, and they are what you need to know about the end times. Three truths. Here's the first one. Jesus is coming again. In the beginning of Matthew 24, 37, Jesus himself says, when the Son of Man returns. He does not say if the Son of Man returns. He says when the Son of Man returns. In John 14, 3 Uh, He made it clear again. It was just before his death on the cross and his disciples kind of knew he was going to be leaving and they're getting worried about how they're going to get along without him. And so Jesus tried to encourage them by saying, When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Many aspects of end times theology are debatable. Okay, but not this. This is absolutely crystal clear. It's locked in. You can take it to the bank. Jesus is coming back. Now, what he didn't tell us is when he's coming back. And that drives people crazy. People like Edgar Quisina. It drives them crazy. They have to try to figure it out. What I'm saying to you is don't worry about it. Don't try to figure it out. Don't let it frustrate you. Be glad he didn't tell us when. It's a good thing he didn't tell us when. Let me see if I can explain that statement in a, with an illustration. Over the last 28 years that I have pastored this church, I have driven up and down Pleasant Hill Road probably thousands of times. I've seen hundreds, no doubt hundreds of speed traps over the years. Cops setting off the side of the road. They got their little radar guns out and they're pulling people over and writing tickets. And boy, they, they do a good business. Um, they get a lot of people. I've seen some of you pulled over. <laughs> I was driving up and down. Uh, I was driving to work one morning and saw our youth minister pulled over, not Jack. This is one of the prior youth ministers before Jack came around. There was our youth minister pulled over by the side of the road. Cop had his pad out and he's writing a ticket. And, of course, I honked and waved as I drove by. (laughs) And then we had a little chat when he got to the office. They get a lot of people. They've never gotten me. They have never gotten me. 28 years they've had chances. They have never gotten me. And do you think the reason I've never gotten a ticket on Pleasant Hill Road is because (laughs) I'm such an angel when I'm behind the wheel. Don't answer that question. (laughs) The reason they have never gotten me is because I've been up and down that road a lot of times. I know they're out there. But I don't know when exactly they're going to be out there, and I don't know where exactly they're going to be hiding. And I made up my mind a long time ago that since I don't know when and I don't know where, It's just best to drive the speed limit. Conversely, if I knew what days they were going to be there, if I knew what hiding places they were going to use on what days, I might be tempted to push it a little bit. So guess what? It's the mystery of it that helps me behave. The same is true when we start to think about Jesus' return. It's the fact that we don't know when it's going to happen and the fact that we don't want to get caught that motivates us to just behave. Can you imagine how people would be living right now if they knew the exact day Jesus was going to return? Can you imagine what would be going on in our world, the things people would be doing? I mean, they would be out there doing crazy stuff, and then the Sunday before Jesus' return, everybody would come to church and repent. You know that's what would happen. The Sunday before Jesus' return, we wouldn't be able to squeeze the people into this building. And so to keep that from happening, Jesus just says, you know what? I'm not telling you. So that gives you motivation to be ready at all times. So don't look at this mystery as a bad thing. It's a good thing. It helps us behave. So Jesus is coming back. Here's the second thing you need to know. Many people won't be ready when Jesus returns. Back to Matthew 24, 37. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. Now let's just stop right there. And talk about that for a second. Many people, when they hear when think about Noah's day, think of a time of decadence, and it was, but that doesn't seem to be Jesus' emphasis here. If he wanted to paint a picture of a decadent world, kind of a world gone wild, he surely would have used different terminology, don't you think? I mean, look at how he describes this time in history. He says that in Noah's day, people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings. Banquets and parties and weddings. That doesn't sound like debauchery, does it? I've been to banquets and parties and weddings. You've been to banquets and parties and weddings. We've all been to banquets and parties and weddings. Banquets and parties and weddings do not make a picture of decadence. I don't think Jesus is referring to decadence when he describes what the last days are going to be like. I think he's simply saying that a lot of people are going to be busy going places and doing things. They're going to be preoccupied. It's for that reason primarily that a lot of people aren't going to be ready when the Lord returns. Look at Matthew chapter uh, 24, verse 40. Jesus says, two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. He's not referencing the morality of these people. He's not saying one is good and one is bad. One behaves himself and the other lives a wild and crazy life. He doesn't say that at all. He describes two people who are basically the same in their lifestyle. Good, hardworking people. It's what good, hardworking people do. They work in the field. They grind flour at the mill. He's not saying good or bad. He's saying they're both decent people, but one is ready and the other one isn't. I think he's talking about everybody just being so busy and this is something we need to think about that to get rid of this notion that it's only bad people who aren't going to be ready for the lord's return the bible does not teach that the bible teaches that even some good people won't be ready for the lord's return Because their attention is going to be elsewhere. They're going to be caught up in the rat race. They're going to be working long hours, you know, trying to get that next promotion, trying to put money in the bank, all these things they're doing. They're going to be busy, busy, busy. Not that they're bad people. They're just busy, busy, busy. And eternity is going to slip up on them unexpectedly. I don't know if we realize what a danger busyness is for us as Christians. If I asked you to make a list of the ten most dangerous sins, I'm guessing busyness would not even make some of your lists. And yet when I read passages like this and I reflect on what I see in people's lives, I'm convinced that busyness is going to be the number one reason why a lot of pretty good people are not going to be ready for the Lord's return. So, the Lord is coming back. Jesus is coming back. A lot of people are not going to be ready. But here's the third truth you need to know. Everybody can be prepared for Jesus' return. The Bible makes this very clear. In fact, let me show you something uh, that I never really noticed before. But when I did notice it, I thought, wow, that is amazing. Whenever a speaker has an important point to make, He almost always makes his point and then follows it up with an illustration to drive it home to make it relatable. It's what I did a moment ago when I was talking about driving up and down Pleasant Hill Road. You make a point, you give a picturesque illustration so people can get it, kind of drive the point home, and make it relatable. It's preaching 101. Okay. So in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus talks about the importance of being ready at all times for his return. And he drives the point home with not one illustration, not two illustrations, not three illustrations, not four illustrations, not five illustrations. He drives the point home with a mind-blowing six consecutive illustrations if you look at these two chapters, you'll see that he gives an illustration about a homeowner and a thief, a faithful servant, an unfaithful servant, ten bridesmaids, servants left in charge of their master's resources, and the dividing of the sheep and the goats. Six consecutive illustrations to make the same point. That it is possible to be ready when Jesus returns. Six consecutive illustrations. Nowhere else in his entire ministry did Jesus ever do this. Six consecutive illustrations. As a preacher, as a person who does this for a living, as a person who writes sermons and uses illustrations, I look at this and I say, wow, he was desperate to get this point across. It is possible to be ready. If you're not too busy, if you're not too distracted, if you get your act together, if you humble yourself, if you get your priorities straight, if you make Jesus your Lord and Savior, you can be ready. Now, there's one more thing I want to talk about on this subject, because I don't think you can preach on the second coming without addressing this one final issue, because it is the elephant in the room. In the New Testament, there is a general sense of anticipation about the Lord's return. People in that time expected it to happen soon. For example, Romans 13, Paul said, time is running out. Wake up. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it says, Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And there are other passages like this where you see, wow, they were really expecting it to happen soon. But now more than, or at least almost 2,000 years have passed, And we're still waiting. And that gives the skeptics and the unbelievers a lot of ammunition to use against us. They think we're foolish for believing in something like this. So let me give you three things to remember that I hope will comfort and encourage you as I wrap up this message. First of all, this delay that we're in the middle of, this delay was predicted. This delay and all of the ridicule from the unbelievers, it was all predicted. 2 Peter 3.3 3 says, In the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to that promise that Jesus is coming again? Maybe you have an unbelieving co-worker or family member that likes to dig you a little bit because you're a Christian. Maybe they've asked this very question. Hey, what happened to Jesus? I thought he was coming back. What's the deal? Kind of hard to take that, isn't it? But it was all predicted. Here's the second thing you need to remember. Jesus is well known for finishing what he starts. Think about how many times on the way to the cross he had a chance to just kind of stop, pull his disciples aside and say, You know, guys... I think I'm going to take a couple of days and think about a different way to do this because I can see where this is heading and it's not going to really work out too well for me. So maybe we can come up with a different plan. Do you realize that crucifixions were common in Jesus' time? Happened all the time. Around the hillsides, around Jerusalem, you could look up and see crosses and criminals hanging on them. And every time Jesus walked past one of those crosses with a criminal hanging on it, he knew that was his future he knew that's where his life was going to end up and he could have said you know what i'm going to have to rethink this thing let's let's figure out something else but he didn't he never changed course he relentlessly marched toward that bitter end because jesus finishes what he starts and that should give us comfort when we begin to wonder if he's really coming back. Here's one more thing I want you to remember, and this is really the good news. There is a reason for this delay. The greatest reason there could ever be. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. There are people in this room right now who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if you're one of them, I want you to know that you are the reason Jesus is waiting a little longer. He's doing it for your sake. Maybe you are a Christian, but you have a dear family member, maybe a parent, or a child, or a husband, or a wife, or maybe you have a dear friend who isn't a Christian, and you have talked to them, and talked to them, and talked to them, and you pray for them daily, and you want them to know Jesus, but so far that hasn't happened. I want you to understand that that person you're thinking of right now is the reason Jesus is waiting. If you want to know why Jesus hasn't come back, it's not because He's changed His mind. It's not because He's gotten sidetracked. It's not because He's lost interest. It is because if He delays a little longer, a few more people will be saved. Even so, there is a limit to His patience. The very next verse, 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. As unexpectedly as a thief. Those words have special meaning to my wife and I because we will never forget the day we went home from church and found that our house had been broken into and things had been stolen. And we were stunned. And why wouldn't we be? We had been to church thousands of times and no one had broken into our house. So we didn't think they would break in that day either. But they did. And that's what Peter is saying here, that all these days have passed without Jesus returning. And it makes us think he's not going to come back today either. But one of these days when we think that, we're going to be wrong. One of these days, he will come again. And people will be shocked. Friends, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I know he's coming, because he finishes what he starts. And I know that as of this moment, everybody still has an opportunity to be ready. Let's stand.